Well, we're glad, again, we're glad, 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 glad you're here. And today I want to talk to you about contentment. And before you turn the dial, if you will, I understand that that particular word, the word contentment, is a soft, mushy word. It's a word that we go, I'm not sure that I really want that. And we're going to talk more about that this morning. A few weeks, a couple weeks ago, uh, we finished up a series on the book of Acts. And Pastor Peter, as he was approaching the end of the book, took us into Acts chapter 27, which is the account of the Apostle Paul shipwreck. If you've not listened to that message, you should go listen to it because it frames some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. Today, we're going to look at how Paul could look back at that event plus a myriad of other events that were difficult, crushing, confusing. And we're going to look at them from the standpoint that Paul could see that and come to this conclusion that he learned something through them. Actually, he called it a secret. I've learned a secret. And secret is not like, okay, I know something that you don't know. It's There's something hidden that has become known to me, and I'm going to share it with you. That's what Paul's saying. That secret is available to all of us today. Learning contentment is no easy task. And you may not think that it's for you, but I'm going to show you that if you call yourself a follower of Christ, it is for you. In fact, it is the very thing that you should be seeking to learn and passionately pursuing. So Philippians chapter four, if you look at the screen, I want to put the text there, but if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you open it to the book of Philippians because we're not going to just look at these few verses. We're going to move through the book and pull out from it some of the things that the apostle Paul wanted the readers to understand. In honor of God, in the reading of God's word, I'm going to ask you to stand. From the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the translation reads this way, Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. So let me have your eyes just for a moment. What he's talking about is Paul had received a gift from them that cared for his needs. When you were in prison, the base needs would have been met. Paul's in prison. But they are sending a gift to him to care for some more substantial needs. Again, verse 10. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need. Now, here it is the first time. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have little and I know how to have a lot. Kind of covers the spectrum. I know how to have a little. I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Lord, open our hearts. Speak to us today about why you gave Paul this secret that we so desperately need 
in a day like today. Speak to us, Lord. Change our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, one thing I want you to notice this. This little book of Philippians has four chapters. What Paul is saying here is in what chapter? Chapter 4. It's near the end of his teaching. He wants them to get this. It's kind of like him saying, after all that I've said up to this point, let me tell you about God's faithful provision no matter what. Now, contentment is challenging for us. It's challenging on many fronts, but one of the ways it's challenging is we don't typically recognize that it's a need. Nor do we see the lack of contentment in our lives as a reason why we're control freaks or driven by a whatever-it-takes mentality or how we live fearfully about the future. We don't see that as a root behind those things. In fact, as I said, the word itself seems kind of soft to us. It's mushy. It's what you do when you can't achieve. You settle for, you try to find contentment. In fact, we kind of see in American culture that winners are never content. It's for those who have to settle for. We're not natural to it. Now, we kind of sort of like the idea of it. Because if your heart is broken and it's uneasy, we would like to find peace. Now, we like the idea of it, but we kind of think this way. It's as varied in form as there are noses in this room. There's all different types of paths to it. But scripturally, there is not. And those are the things that I want to focus on today. It's one of the great struggles of the human heart. Proverbs 27, verse 20 says it this way. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are human eyes. We are constantly on the lookout for something else, something more, something's better than our circumstances where we find ourselves. Yet Paul, he says... He learned to be content. Chapter 4, verse 11. Learning is a process. He uses very select words. I learned, I've learned. Learning is a process and not always an easy one. In case you missed it, when I read the text, Paul faced abundance and he faced need. And in every circumstance, he said, I learned the secret. I've learned that through Christ, I'm able to do this. Now, for those of you who may find yourself here and you don't know a whole lot about the Apostle Paul, that's okay. I want to tell you a little bit about what he wrote about himself and his experience in the book of 2 Corinthians. This is a letter to another church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he is telling them a little bit about his history. And he says this, I'm talking like a madman. Now, he would say this because pretty much people in Corinth think, This guy's crazy. This guy's driven by things we don't understand. And all the things that's happened to him, he's got it all framed up wrong. And I want to show you what these things are. He says, 
in verse uh, of chapter 11, verses 23 to 28 of 2 Corinthians, I'm talking like a man went mad, madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Everyone in this room, I'd like you to listen for the numbers. The numbers that Paul mentions in what he says. Five times I received at the hands of Jews the 40 lashes less one. For all those mathematicians in the room, that's 39, all right? Because it was often seen that 40 would kill you. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at the sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Do you know what happens to me on a very personal level when I read that? I read that and I go, Brian Fannin, you're soft. You're concerned about wearing a mask. If we were consulting Paul, if he came by our house and had a conversation with us and says, what do you think about what God's doing? And he laid out this stuff. To us, we might be tempted to say, I don't know that God's in this, Paul. Look at all the things he's trying to tell you. All these hardships. And the reason why we do that is because our minds are framed that hardship means that God's not blessing us. That God's not in it. But Paul understood that was not the case. How could Paul say, I've learned contentment? And from those lessons, how can you and I learn these lessons on how to be content? Well, this subject is very close to my heart. I've spent years studying it. And I'm going to tell you why. I want to be completely transparent with you. Some of you know me better than others. But I grew up wanting more. I didn't want a little bit more. I wanted a whole lot more. And I can give you reasons why that was so in my life. But the bottom line, the Bible did not need to tell me that I was dissatisfied. I simply was. I actually saw dissatisfaction as a good thing. And to this day, I'm a guy that's driven. I love excellence. I can smell lazy in my life and the life of others a mile away. I believe in hard work. I push. I seek to improve. And I knew growing up that the only way for me to escape some of my circumstances was not to resign myself to accept what was in my life. But therein, listen to me. Therein was the problem. My discontent 
was linked firmly and fully into what I wanted from life. And the first thing that you and I need to see from Paul's life is this. This very lesson helped him begin to grasp this secret. And here it is. It starts with how you see yourself. It starts with how we view our lives. And there are but two options to how you're going to see life. Two options. Option one, you are in control of your life. It is your life and you get to make all the decisions. Your life, you're the boss of you, right? We don't say it necessarily that way. You see yourself as belonging to yourself. The second option is that you belong to God. You belong to Christ. Now take your Bible and look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Now this is Paul's salutation. It's like his dear Philippi. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, some of you have a translation that renders that probably more accurately slaves. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul viewed himself this way. He was a servant of the King of Kings. Some translations use this word slave, and that is a hot topic word. The days in our nation of American slavery is an ugly black eye on our history, and one by the grace of God that we have learned from. Slavery is a bad word in our minds. We avoid enslaving and being enslaved. After all, as American citizens, at the height of value is freedom. It's at the heart of who we are. But being a slave to Christ, biblically, is a gift. It's not a burden. It's a gift to you. The Scripture tells us plainly that we're already slaves of some, si- of some size. John chapter 8, Jesus was teaching, and this is what he said. Whoever commits sin is what? A Slave to what? To sin. You and I are a slave to something. One of the chief ways that this shows up in our life is the narrow view that comes in our life that as American citizens, if you are an American citizen, that life is all about liberty and the pursuit of happiness. All of that is the summation of the American dream. But when you trust Christ, you begin to see that the Christian life is more than that. As, as an amazing gift of that as that is, that we live in a free nation and we're able to have that, Christ promises a liberation from a life that's all about you. Christ offers you a liberation from the slavery that it's actually you. 
slave to yourself. You don't have to be a Christian to see. In fact, you may find yourself here today and you wouldn't call yourself a believer. But you know very well what the rest of us know. The world's messed up. Things are screwy. Things are not good. You don't know what to believe. Any careful thinker also understands in humility that they individually are part of the mess that we're in. I'm a mess. I help cause the mess. And trusting Christ with your life is giving yourself to the one who fits you with something far better. And when you're a servant, when you're a servant of Christ, you know you belong to the one who is the victor over sin and death. This is, this is Christian speak for this. Christ offers victory over your self-addiction and your ultimate death, both your spiritual death and your physical death. Christ comes to offer you something better. This something better is what Paul understood that in spite of all that he experienced, he knew that there was contentment and peace because of Christ in him and Christ owning him. We have a contentment problem. My sin... Our death, my death, is at the core of my contentment problem. And it shows up like this. I have fears. And there's lots of things to be fearful of. For instance, and if you've known as you age, your body doesn't work the same way as it used to. And for those young people that sit in the room, we love you. It's coming. All right? It's coming. You can eat like a bird and you'll still gain weight. For those of you who sit in this room who know the reality of loving a child and seeing your child sick, seeing your child suffer, it causes fear to rise up within us. We don't, it's not just about health, not just about those that we love and their health. It's our personal and financial relational health. Those things bleed into our life and we are consumed with how are things going to turn out or your personal security and your status. Where do you fit in the world? Are you significant? Do you matter? What does life mean? And from the onset of Paul's letter, he gives us a hint of why he could say, I have learned the secret of being content. He knew who he was And he knew to whom he belonged. And it's not just this one verse. Look with me in verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. There in verse 12, he's picking up a thought about how he is pressing on in his pursuit of following Christ faithfully and knowing the joy of, of relationship with him. He's talking about perfection or completion. And this is what he says. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Now look at this phrase. Because Christ Jesus has done what? He has made me his own. 
When you trust Christ, Christ makes you His. You belong to Him. His love drives you to Him. But more importantly, His unimaginable love drives Him to you. To draw you to himself and to make you his prized and precious possession. Here's secret number one. Paul understood it. A secure identity is found in belonging to Christ. All the unrest that you can know in your life. And you will know unrest. You live, you and I live in a broken world. But you can know security when you belong to Jesus. It frames how you think about yourself. It frames about how you think about life. Lesson number two. From this book. When you belong to Christ, you must pursue living for Christ in each and every circumstance. Now, I thought about this over the weekend, and I needed to change this. It is not when you belong to Christ, you must pursue living for Christ in each and every circumstance, because that's foolish to believe that everyone who calls himself a follower of Christ is doing this each and every day. I know that we don't. And I know that we struggle to maintain the right framework. So here's the way I would say this that is more accurate. When you belong to Christ, you must pursue living for Christ if you are going to know contentment in each and every circumstance. That's how you're going to do it. If you're going to know contentment, you must choose to live for Him. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. It's a talking about how you need to frame up everything that comes your way, everything that comes in front of your eyes, everything that filters into your head. Last year, my family, we went to San Francisco for part of our vacation. And I got a chance to really witness reality versus perception. Now, for you old goats in the room, including me, all right, There's this thing out there that's only new in the past six or seven years called influencers. Now, the influencer is a person whose domain is social media, and they get enough likes and followers and people looking at them that they make money off their accounts. They're influencers. They often take themselves way too seriously. And I got a chance to see it. So when you scroll through your apps and you look on Facebook and you look on Instagram and all those magnificent pictures and some of them are, uh, are, are just, I mean, they just look like they're perfect. Yeah, they do because they're staged. So on the streets of San Francisco, anybody remember that show? God bless you old people in the room, all right? <laughs> Me too. On the streets of San Francisco, I came out of this little deli. There's people standing there, and they're watching it, looking across the street. And there's this family. 
And everybody's dressed up. And there's about six or seven people holding lights and umbrellas and cameras. And dad's down on the ground wiping a, a poopy diaper up. And uh, they're trying to get this picture taken. And mom, standing there, she looks a little bit frazzled. And then they turn on the fan and they get the wind blowing just right. And the cameras are shooting. And it takes 10 minutes to get a two-second shot, and then everybody goes back to crying in the moment, all right? But we look at that stuff, and we go, my life doesn't look like that. No! Just like mom, you get pimples, and you need spanks to look like that. That's reality. That's reality. That's The problem is that we allow media and our own imaginations to frame what we think is reality. When you belong to Christ, the world must not frame your life and all that you value because you possess the very presence of Christ in your life. So you say, well, Brian, bring it home. Help me understand what you mean here. Let me just ask you a question. Why are you unhappy? Why are you unhappy? Could it be that if you call yourself a Christian, that you're unhappy because it has very little to do with what you don't have? But the very problem of who lives inside you? Because when Christ lives inside you, he takes the responsibility to move you beyond being addicted to you. And he moves you beyond pursuing what is contrary to his very nature in you. It just doesn't work very long. It might work for a while. It does not last forever. But Christ in your life is forever. Forever. His abiding, resurrected, glorious beauty in you. Forever. When you give your life to Christ, you get a new lease. You get a new lease, you get new freedom. You get forgiven of all your sin. You get set free to live any way you want. Yes. When Christ comes into your life, you get to live any way you want. And for those of you sitting there going, holy cow, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. When Christ abides in your life... You get a new nature, and that new nature desires the things of God. And yes, you can live the way you want, because it reflects the character of Christ. Not perfectly, but changed. You don't have to live in a balled-up mess about circumstances. Our lives have to move beyond being driven by what the world does or our ideal circumstances to being framed by what the gospel actually does for us. Look at Philippians chapter 1 with me. I wanted you to see how Paul put this. Verse 21, 
of chapter 1. Paul says this, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, Paul says, I can't lose. I am firmly belonging to Christ right now. And when I die for all eternity, I'm going to know His presence. I'm going to know the glory of perfection. So he saw death as even a gain. But down in verse 27, I want to pick it up there as well. So he tells the church at Philippi how they are to live. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and in one mind, striving, here's the phrase, side by side for the faith of the gospel. Each of you, each of you in this room have a calling on your life that we together are to unite in how we think that we belong to Christ and that we are to be living side by side. So I have people say to me on a regular basis, Brian, what, wh- how should I live? What, what is it? Now that I'm a Christian, what does life look like? First of all, Christianity is never a solo project. That's why Paul says side by side. I want to give you the modern look at that at Grace Fellowship Church. Grace Fellowship Church is a church that pretty much follows what's called a simple church paradigm. We respect other churches that have programs. But mostly what we do, two things. Two things. Number one, we ask you to go get in a community group. You need a community group. You may not think you need a community group, and the reason why you don't think you need a community group is because you're not thinking clearly. All right? Take it from the poster boy. When I came to Grace Fellowship, I wanted to do anything but get in a community group. It changed my life. Here's why it changed my life. It changed my life because it placed beside me other believers that helped me see that I did not see my life accurately. That's why you need a community group, striving side by side. I'm not talking about what you want. I'm speaking about what Paul says that you and I need. You need others. You need them in your life. You need others speaking into your life. Here's the second thing. The second thing that we do here is we call people to serve. In fact, if you struggle with the blues at all, one of the surefire ways to help you get out of the blues is you stop being inwardly focused and being, began to be outwardly focused and giving your life away to other people, serving people, doing for other people, helping other people. Because on our own, our lives are a little bit like black holes. We collapse inward. We pull everything down and in. 
But Paul tells us that the secret of contentment is found by doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That is in chapter 2, verse 3. Now, I want you to look at it with me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The only reason why he can say this and does say this is he wanted them to quit being challenged with discord and start looking at other people and serving them. But in humility, count, each other, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Let me illustrate this. Anybody that knows Amy Fannin, my beautiful bride, she's right back there. So, honey, you're going to hear me say this, all right? She loves to play board games. I would rather get poked in the eye. All right? And we don't play them nearly enough to her satisfaction. And you know why that is? Because she prefers me. But when I'm doing what I should be doing, I prefer her and we play more board games. That's just one of the myriad of ways that we serve one another. So let me get real personal here, okay? Everybody appropriately have your seatbelt on. Especially men. I want to talk to men a minute. Husbands, does how you treat your wife tell your children that she's more important than you? If you want to understand what Paul's talking about, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about you Laying yourself down for the good of other people. It's, he's talking about loving other people who are different than you, who don't agree with you. If you're a masker, it means loving people who do not want to wear masks. And if you are a person that says, I think masks are a joke. Loving someone else involves wearing a mask. That's what he's talking about. Preferring other people. All of this is in the backdrop of this. Contentment is found in pursuing living for Christ in each and every circumstance. And as a side note, let me just say this. Grace Fellowship, as we typically do, we run contrary to what's happening in many church cultures. So in light of COVID and beginning to meet again, many churches, when they began meeting again, they would start at about 30 to 35%, and then they would fall back in about the 20 to 25% range. Grace Fellowship... Started 35 to 40%, and now we're almost, we're between 45 and 50% of our body is now meeting in person. What does that mean for you? It means that God ordained you to be in a church that needs you to serve. 
You find your life by giving it away. Cindy Malott would love for you to observe and consider what would it be like for you to maybe serve in children's ministry from time to time or in the resource center or as soon as we're able to get coffee back or being a greeter or on our security teams or many other resource teams. I'm not asking you to sign up today. I'm asking you to pray about it and then I'm asking you to raise your hand and Begin giving your life away. Because by finding, the way you find your life is begin, you begin losing it and giving it away to other people. The irony of contentment is that you will find by abandoning your pursuit of ease, you enter into a life of growing and giving yourself away. Lesson number three. The Apostle Paul calls us to think, 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 think. Contentment starts between your ears. This is a big deal. Learning contentment involves thinking. Naming, learning to control your thinking. You and I must constantly battle to take control of our stinking thinking. And there's a lot of it going around. The classroom of contentment involves taking responsibility for your thinking and your actions. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 tells us not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of what? Not your bodies, your what? Your mind. Exercise is profitable. But you can be in great shape and be a complete fool. All right? God calls us to understand that the battle for your soul starts in your head. And I'm going to show you. You say, well, Brian, where does the Bible say that? Romans chapter 1. I want you to flip back over there for a second. I want to show you what Paul said to the church at Rome... As he laid out how the world had lost its mind and why it was doing what it was doing. For although they knew God, now he's talking about that the culture knows, individual, our hearts inside us say, there's a God. I may not know him, I may not believe, but there's a God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their what? Thinking. Now, notice what happens. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What he is saying is this. When your head stinks, your heart just follows it. The battle for contentment starts between your ears. And we're not always thinking clearly. Contentment involves doing that, learning to control it. 
And he tells us several things in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. First thing Paul says is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, if you've lost track and you don't remember, remember what, how Paul described what he'd been through? Do any of you remember where he is when he wrote this letter? Paul is in what? Prison. And he is telling us to rejoice? Would Paul say to us today that we have reasons to rejoice? Yes! We have reasons to rejoice. In fact, 16 times in this book, he calls us to joy and or to rejoicing. The path out of your funk often involves greater praise, lifting your voice, and finding joy in what God has done for you. Second thing is he tells us to pray. Ask and to thank God. Ask God to help you pray for what He wants to give you. And begin thanking Him for all that He's doing. All that He's going to do. God is not about doing what you want. He's about bringing the greatest glory to Himself. And amazing good to you. And if you and I prayed more and rejoiced greater, our problems would look smaller. And I think we worry so much because we pray so little. But just at the core of this lesson, Paul turns his attention to thinking. And this is what he says in verse 8. Finally, brothers. Finally. Now he says finally because he said, all right, I'm about to stick the landing. I don't want you to miss this. Finally, finally. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Yes, the battle for contentment begins between your ears. What's the greatest influence on you? What are you thinking about? Every waking hour you're thinking. You take in, you give out, you have endless conversations with yourself. There's constant stimulus. Think about how much time you spend working, communicating, and being influenced by what you read, listen to, or scroll through. You're not operating in a vacuum. We're actually more like sponges absorbing something. And so I want to talk to you, hopefully with a shepherd's voice this morning, and ask you to hear me. Brett McCracken wrote this. A church's worship may have it, its habits may occupy two hours of a Christian's week. But podcasts, radio shows, cable news, social media, streaming entertainment, and other forms of media account for upwards of 90 hours of your week. 
none of us would think that those things have no impact on us. If you give two hours a week to God and the rest of your time is full of all these other things, naturally it's going to impact how you think and your level of contentment. What stirs you up? What gives you fits? What frightens you? Paul says, think about other things. Think about what's true. He's saying, think about what's real. What's ultimate. What's honorable. This means respected and dignified. What's just. Yes, do you know that God wants you to think about justice? He does want you to be concerned about is what is fair and good for all. God wants you thinking that way. What's pure? This word is the word for innocence. I'm wondering if we could screw off your skull cap and I took a ladle and dipped into your brain and spilled it out on the table. What would we find? Would we find purity or cynicism? Is corruption where you're leading? I find this helpful for me. Is the way that I'm thinking helpful to a five-year-old? And then he uses the word lovely, whatever's lovely. This is the only occurrence of this particular word in the New Testament, but the root occurs in other words. It's the where we get the word philanthropy. It's the word for goodness and giving to the good of others, that we are to be thinking lovely thoughts, recognizing lovely things. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise. Look, these are words that call you to get outside of you and to speak up and say good things about what is praiseworthy. One of the great threats to your mind is the belief that you cannot control what you think. I'm not saying it's an easy battle. But every time you turn on the news, you're being influenced. Every tweet, every article, every ad, you're being influenced. Am I saying that you should get off the grid and ignore all information and become a hermit? No. No. That's not what I'm saying. But I do want you to hear clearly what I am saying. And I want to say this to you as your pastor who prays for you. It's something that I've learned about myself. Fox News, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, and a good deal of other things that I would read online or otherwise is no friend to my walk with Christ. Not my friend. Social media is regularly framing your reality, not God's Word. These sources can help you in your echo chamber. They won't help you find contentment. 
Only in coming to Him will you find rest for your soul. And He calls you to come to Him with your burdens and your fears and your frustrations. And you can find rest for your soul. Again in chapter 4 verse 11, Paul wrote, In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Some of your translation says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. These words are often used poorly by professing Christians. They're used to inspire achievement. As if the sky is the limit with God on your side. But that's not what Paul's talking about. That certainly is not what he is coaching. Paul is coaching contentment. That regardless of what is transpiring in the circumstances around us, regardless of what you find your circumstances to be personally, however frustrating they might be, however fearful they might be in your imagination, Paul is saying there is a path to contentment. And I know that might disappoint you because that word contentment is a soft word. It's a word that we kind of like, all right, if I have to. But our hearts long for something other than winning. Live long enough and you're going to know defeat. You're going to face good times and you're going to face times of loss. You're going to know some of what Paul faced. You're going to know the soul-crushing reality of, a, of abuse, of rejection, of disappointment, of shame. Sometimes at other people's hands, sometimes at your own hands. But know this, whatever you may believe about God, all of us know that something terribly has gone wrong. And Jesus is the one place where the answers are outside of you, you do not need to look for answers within you. He calls you to come to Him to discover that your heart need not fear. Your dreams of hope are possible. Yes, He knows everything about you. And He paid the penalty at the cross for all your sin. In fact, everything you face can be faced with the sure knowledge that in Christ... All circumstances, all disappointments, all fears, all of those things can be faced with the absolute assurance that you can have the strength to face them because you're never going to face them alone. You're never going to be alone when you know Christ. Paul said it well in chapter 3, verse 8. I'd like you to bow your heads, and I'd like to talk to you about what he said as we close. In chapter 3, verse 8, and reflecting back on his life, Paul said, I count everything as loss. Everything is loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, let's just go down the list. As you reflect, he says everything because he knew everything at the end of all things was going to be worthless. Everything was going to fade away. 
your worries about money, they're all going to eventually not matter. Fame, you're concerned about beauty, power, will you have enough education? Or whatever education that you have, you can have a PhD and your heart and your stomach is in knots. All of your talent, all of your possessions, all of your accomplishments, all of the victories, and yes, even all of your failures, all reputation and all recognition, all of these things, the Apostle Paul lumped them together and he says, I count them all loss, I count them all worthless for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus. Why would he say such a thing? Because when all things fade, Christ will remain. As we work our way continually through a COVID culture, as Christians even talk past one another in disagreement, as we dissect words, Paul's saying, it's all worthless. And I know this, I know that Christians are struggling just like the world's struggling. We've lost our song. We've lost our focus. We've lost the reality that we belong to Jesus. And in belonging to Jesus, Paul could know, just like you can know today, All things are ultimately in His control. And you can face all things through Christ who strengthens you. Lord, remind that in our hearts today. Oh, stir in us repentance. Stir in us a change of our mind. Stir in us a devotion to you. To abandon the rhetoric around us. And to get focused on the glory of your beauty, your goodness, and your kindness, and your gentleness. For you are gentle. Draw us near to you, Lord. Help us to believe fresh and new. That we can learn contentment. And we can know the joy from it. In Christ's name.